Acts 6, 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrians and the Alexandrians and those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly investigated men who said, uh, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and uh, welcome. Glad you're at Christ Community this morning, Leewood Campus. And uh, it's a glorious Holy Week and we're just delighted you are here. Well, one of the most popular genres of movies these days is superhero movies. Do you believe this, that since 2000, or roughly about that, over 50 superhero movies have come to the screen? Many of them have been blockbuster, massive money makers. Of course, there's your favorite, I'm sure, Superman or Wonder Woman or the latest, The Black Panther, and I have to say, I'm not a great superhero fan, but I suspect that many of you, like me, have seen most of them, whether you admit it or not, right? So what is it about superhero movies that are so attractive to us? What does our hero hunger say about you and me? What, what does it say about our culture? Well, much has been written about that, of course, by our social pundits and sociologists, but I want to suggest perhaps the alluring appeal, or at least one of them, is that many of us feel increasingly vulnerable in a world that seems more chaotic and more out of control than ever. Yet maybe our superhero hunger points us to something more. I was really intrigued by an Atlantic Monthly article and uh, it was entitled, Why Do People Like Superheroes? Now, the writer is not favorably impressed with superhero movies, just to tell you that. But it's an interesting article. And he says basically this. He points out the marketing genius of superhero movies. And he describes them with these words. As the bigness, now don't be offended, and dumbness of the mythologies of modernity. Now, whatever you think of this article, uh, the conclusion is worth reading the article because it's chalked with insight. And I want to read his conclusion. He writes, if the big dumb dream of our ancestors was that there were gods, many gods, our current big dumb dream seems to be there aren't. And that we don't need them because we've taken 
their place. <clears throat> Could it be that our superhero hunger and superhero obsession is trying to fill a vacuum that only the one true God can fill? Now, however you understand hero hunger, and there are many ways to talk about it, I do think we can all agree at least on this, that it's fair to say that our heroes, who they are, speak loudly about who we are, what we value, and what is truly important to us. Now, your hero, we all have them, may be on the movie screen. Uh, they may be on a sports field. I think there's a big game today, I hear. They, they may be uh, on the field of combat or, like this afternoon, a concert hall like Yo-Yo Ma. Or they may be in the arena of faith. We've been reminded of this, haven't we, across our culture with Billy Graham's recent death. Much has been written about this extraordinary man. His impeccable integrity, his humility, his boldness of conviction, his stunning influence. But what has impressed me most perhaps in the last few weeks is even those who do not agree with Billy Graham, who have a different worldview, who don't agree with his message, have praised him in almost heroic language. Now, Billy Graham, and it was said by several, that his most impacting sermon was actually his funeral. Now, perhaps they are right. Because in Billy Graham's life and death, we have been reminded as a culture of an important truth, that the real heroes are not actors on a screen, but people, everyday people who simply live life well and die well. So who are your heroes? And what do they say about you? In this morning's text, we are given one of the most inspiring portraits of a first century hero. A hero who lived well and remarkably died well. His name was Stephen. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 6. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts in the New Testament. Now, as a church family, we've been exploring this remarkable book, which is really a history of the earliest church, early, early days of the church. And up to this point, in chapters 1 through 5, one thing we have seen is that followers of Jesus are increasingly feel the heat, feeling the heat of opposition. They have faced arrest, they have faced harassment. They have recently, in the last chapter, been flogged. Now as we come to chapter 6 and 7, which is a whole unit of thought, what we need to see is the heat of opposition has been turned up a hateful notch. And what Luke does, who writes with brilliant rhetoric and literary style, he frames the narrative around, and it's important to see this, an intensifying polarization. On one side is a willingness to kill in opposing Jesus. On the other side is a willingness to die for Jesus. 
And in this narrative frame, Luke gives us, with brilliant brushstrokes, a stunning portrait of a true heroic life. We will see, as we look at this portrait more carefully, that there are three characteristics of a truly heroic life, and they go in this sequence. Faithfulness in the small things, courage in the big things, and hope in all things. Faithfulness, courage, and hope. So let's dive in. You'll notice if you look back in your text, in the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6, Luke introduces us to Stephen, and we must not miss how he is introduced. He describes him with the highest praise, someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit and faith, but notice He emphasizes Stephen's good reputation and wisdom. In other words, Stephen's life to everyone in the community was exemplary. That matters. Stephen, along with six others, are asked by the early church leaders to simply roll up their sleeves and care for the widows, particularly the Greek-speaking widows, who are the most vulnerable among them. Now, you will notice as you read this that Luke intentionally paints Stephen echoing Jesus himself all through this story. Like his master, like his master Jesus, like his master Jesus, got it? Like his master Jesus, Stephen picks up the basin and towel and he waits on others. Let's not forget that Jesus himself said, the greatest among us is the servant, Jesus said of himself, the son is, a man is not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, during this Holy Week and Palm Sunday, while his greatest act of service of dying on the cross is front and center, Christ's death for your sin and mine, we must not miss that Jesus spent the vast majority of his time on earth serving others in a carpentry shop in Nazareth. For 30-some years, with his family and in his workplace, Jesus was faithful in the smallest things of everyday life, and that matters. Here, Luke wants us to grasp that by serving faithfully in small things, Stephen's heroic life is being formed and forged every day. Luke wants us to understand, because he gives so much press to this hero in Acts, That true heroism is not seen merely in an exhibit, for example, of one grand crescendo moment, but in the countless moments of obscure faithfulness. Luke wants us to know that extraordinary lives are lived out on many ordinary days. One of my favorite writers who is now passed to be with the Lord, she was just a dynamic woman. Her name was Anne Kimmel. And... uh, she has contributed to my life in many ways, but one of my favorite quotes of Ann Kimo is she says, life is filled with ordinary days. And it's what you do on your ordinary days that makes your life extraordinary. This is what Luke is saying as he paints an ordinary, extraordinary life like Stephen. True heroic life is lived out in ordinary days. So how are you doing there? How are you doing in the ordinary days? Are you being faithful in the small things? How trustworthy are you in your relationships with others? With your friends at school? With your colleagues at work? 
How faithful are you in pursuing sexual purity in your life? How are you stewarding every day the financial resources and wealth God has given you? If I were to ask your colleagues at work or your friends at school about your character and your work ethic, what would they say about you? As a teenager and college student, one of the greatest blessings of my life was to work several years in a fast food restaurant. Of all the leadership courses and opportunities I've had in my life, I have never learned more than those years of serving the public. And if you've served the public and waited on customers, you know some are wonderful and some are really difficult. (laughs) But it was cleaning the public bathrooms in our fast food restaurant that taught me the most. And here Stephen is waiting on the most vulnerable of society, the widows, the Greek-speaking widows. See, faithfulness in obscure places prepares us for faithfulness in more visible places. It has often been said, and so wisely, that when we sow an action, we reap a habit. When we sow a habit, we reap a character. When we sow a character, we will reap a destiny. Faithfulness, friends, in the little things, it's about living each day before our audience of one. And the good news of the gospel is not just about the restoration of people. It is indeed that. It is also about the restoration of all things. That means we are a part of that if you are a follower of Jesus. Whether you're serving within the church walls or in your home or in the workplace or at school, your faithful service matters to God, to others, and to your own spiritual formation. So how will you approach work tomorrow? Whether you're paid or unpaid. How will you treat your colleagues, your employees, your customers? How will you create a pocket of God-honoring greatness in your work cubicle? That matters to God. And it certainly matters to your fellow employees and your employer. I love one of our favorite contemporary philosophers, music rock star Bono. And he describes his fruitful work like this, as tearing back a small corner of the darkness in the world. That was Stephen. That's the picture Luke gives of Stephen first. He is following Jesus. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is being filled and faithful in the smallest of things, and he is simply, day by day, tearing back a small corner of the darkness in the world. Christ's community, we often, if you're here for a while, we talk a lot about it is not just trying harder to be like Jesus. It is training better with Jesus. As apprentices of Jesus, we train off the spot so we can be faithful. We're put on the spot. On that morning when Stephen was being faithful, he could have never imagined what that day would have brought forth. And you can't either tomorrow, or can I. What is around the corner in Stephen's life could have only been prepared in a life of faithfulness off the spot because he never knows when he's on the spot and he is going to get on the spot in a hurry here. What you see is that faithfulness in the smallest things makes it possible for us to have courage in the hard and big things that often surprise us. And that's the second characteristic of a heroic life. Faithfulness in small things. Courage in the big hard things. Stephen was not only serving in obscurity, you'll notice what Luke says in verse 8, if you have your Bible open, that Stephen was growing in visibility, his ministry was growing, he was displaying miraculous abilities. This, of course, caught the attention of the religious authorities, 
So they confront Stephen. And because they can't handle his character or wisdom, they seek to destroy him. That's what happens when you can't handle someone's character and wisdom. They conjure up false charges of blasphemy. And they haul him before the high priest. And the turning point of this narrative is verse 7-1. It's a little verse. It simply says, and the high priest said, are these things so? After that question, Stephen's life would change forever. Suddenly, Stephen is put on the spot. And from verse 2 all the way through verse 53, we see courage under fire. And Luke, this is even about the Apostle Paul, Luke includes <laughs> Stephen's speech that's the longest speech in all of Acts. That's how important it is. So what's it all about? Well, in case you're worried, we're not going to do all of it. Let's do a brief flyover. But I want to encourage you to look at it carefully this week. It is loaded with goodies. So what is Stephen basically doing in a speech? What's it all about? Okay, let's just get to the, to the bottom line here a bit. What Stephen does is he traces the history of Israel, God's covenant people, from big heavy hitters from Abraham on, right? And Stephen tells the history of how God, the God of glory, which he repeats several times, it's an important phrase, reveals himself to his covenant people and his covenant people reject it. Let's remember now that Stephen is not a trained, trained order that we know, or it's certainly not a trained preacher. That should give all of us encouragement. Because in the power of the Spirit, he becomes this wonderful order, and he's amazingly gifted in his persuasion. Why? Because he knows the one who the story's all about. That's the key. Throughout his speech, Stephen contrasts, you will notice as you look at it more carefully, God's faithfulness and God's people's unfaithfulness. And a particular focus of Stephen's speech you want to look at carefully is God's manifest presence, particularly as it's relating to the tabernacle and temple. Let's recall that the text tells us that Stephen has been accused of blasphemy and speaking against the temple. So his prophetic critique is hard-hitting. He is not just, as they say, a preacher meddling. <laughs> he is turning their world upside down, inside out. Because at the very center of the first century, Judaism was the temple. And I think there's a picture. This is a model. Uh, it was amazing. It was the pride of the nation. This massive temple complex. You can't see all of it here. It was a kind of religious good luck charm. And it was the very legitimization of the religious faith. Think of our Bible as Christians today. That's how important it was. Yet Stephen is saying... You have lost the ball of truth in the religious weeds of the temple. Wow. He's saying God's presence is not limited to the temple. And notice in verse 48, he says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. So what is Stephen saying? In the speech, and I encourage you to read it all, He's saying it's not about the temple ultimately. It's about knowing Jesus the Messiah, the righteous one. That's his language for Jesus, who has come. And here's his idea. Truly knowing God is not about a place ultimately, but a person. And then he gets right to the heart. Look at verses 51 through 53. This is Stephen. You ready? <laughs> you stiff-necked people. I'm reading the Bible now. I'm not just talking to you. 
uncircumcised and hardened ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. That's Messiah Jesus. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered, whom you have received the law, but even delivered by angels, you did not keep it. Wow. From our cultural context, we're here, we hear just too much name-calling. That's another story of civility. Stephen's language here may be a bit off-putting when you first read it. Doesn't that seem like that to you? It does to me. If, if Pastor Andrew and myself were up here and we said things like, you bullheaded, <laughs> stiff-necked, blankety-blank people. My hunch, just a hunch, <laughs> is that I might get a few emails. Maybe Andrew would really get them. And I have a hunch that Andrew and I might be the only ones here on Easter morning next Sunday. What's going on here? Uh, Stephen is not being self-righteous. He's not being intolerant. He has fiery rhetoric, for sure. But what's going on? In this context, it's a persuasive urgency that he is passionate about. Uh, moms, dads, grandpa, grandma, what happens when your child or grandchild gets close to the street? Do you just kind of go, ah, well, you just get to it. You speak quick and hard. This is exactly what he's doing. His speech makes a big hit, but it also makes a big turn. In verse 51, he moves from past history to the present. Now, as Luke does throughout the series, he continually in the book of Acts weaves in irony. And here we have irony again. The religious leaders have thought they're putting Stephen on trial, but it's the other way around. They now realize Stephen is putting them on trial. The hunter's prey is now pursuing the hunter. And Stephen confronts them. The past rejection is a pattern that they are continuing in the present. That's the idea. And Stephen drives home the point that the unimaginable glory of God cannot be contained, but it can be rejected in our lives. And in rejecting Jesus, Stephen says, you are rejecting the God of glory. One of the repeated themes so far in the book of Acts, if you've been with us, and I hope you hang with us in this wonderful series, is the bold witness of the early followers of Jesus. There is boldness when we are filled with the Spirit. And Stephen finds himself in a very hard visible place. But he also found the courage to be faithful as a witness for Jesus. Sometimes we forget that in the 2,000-year history of the church, today, unlike any other time in history, more people who are followers of Jesus are tortured, imprisoned, and killed simply because they believe in Jesus. Particularly egregious, and there are many spaces, is the country of Iran. In Iran, followers of Jesus face massive persecution. Two of those followers of Jesus I want to bring to your attention this morning. 
as we had prayed for others over the years, two Iranian Christians who are facing an appeal, but it's very difficult. I'd like you to pray for them. Skanda and Sarush facing very difficult times simply because of their witness for Jesus. I think the question is not just praying for them, but what about us? Are we being courageous in those hard places? Those hard places you find yourself and I find myself where peer pressure or the fear of rejection may lead us to quiet passivity or unimaginable conformity. Are we willing to, of course, lovingly, winsomely, but courageously speak up when we know people who will hear our words may be opposed to our message? When the clear teachings of Holy Scripture go against the grain of our contemporary cultural values, how do we respond? Do we have the courage to live as Christ would have us live? The courage to share the good news of Jesus with friends at school, colleagues at work, neighbors across the street, and family members we see at Thanksgiving. How we need in our time the Daniels and Esthers stand up? Do we have the courage to speak truth to power, to confront injustice, and to be an advocate for the vulnerable? Stephen's remarkable courage is on display for us here. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we might have an inspiration for our times. Stephen was faithful in the smallest of things. And because of that, he had courage in the big things. But a heroic life needs more than faithfulness and more than courage. Where this text goes is the third characteristic all of us desperately need, and that is hope in all things. Look at this text, verse 54 through 60, how it ends. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. There's that phrase. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And that's going to be important later on in the narrative. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep or he died. Luke describes for us here this angry mob and the stoning of the first martyr of the Christian church. But we must not miss 
Let the echoing of Jesus' words on the cross overshadow it. Like his master Jesus, Stephen looked heavenward in prayer, didn't he? Like Jesus, he uttered a final word of hope. And like Jesus on the cross, he expressed forgiveness to those who were murdering him. Like Master Jesus, Stephen not only lived well, he died well. Because when we live well, we can die well. Stephen is dying. He is given the most stunning glimpse, perhaps, of all of Scripture of the heavenly realm, or at least one of the most beautiful. Luke wants us to grasp something very important. This is why it's important to read the Scripture carefully. Twice. He does something that is stunning. He shows Jesus standing by the right hand of God. Throughout Scripture, Jesus is always sitting there. So what is Luke doing? Biblical scholars wrestle not with its importance, but its implications. And there are probably three or four layers of meaning. One is that Jesus is alive and well, the resurrected king, doing his work, being the judge. But I think there's something else going on. My hunch is that Jesus is welcoming Stephen home. I bet. I just bet that Jesus has given Stephen a standing ovation. Whatever is going on here, he is saying, welcome home, Stephen. In Stephen's radiant life and radiant death, Luke wants us to just marinate in this hero of faith. And he wants us to emulate it. Tomorrow is an important day in my life. That is, it's the anniversary, 11 years, since my mom, Delight, died. And she left a note for us. Last thing she wrote on her kitchen table, four words, meet me at home. That's, I think, what Luke is doing here. The writer of Hebrews chapter 13, 7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome, that is, their whole life, but also their death. The way of their life. Now imitate their faith in life and in death. He is saying, look how they finished the race. It's not just how we start. It's how we finish. How will you finish? One of the followers of Jesus who finished well was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I discovered Dietrich's writing when I was a kid. Read more as a teenager. He was a German pastor whose radiant life and radiant death have had such a profound impact on followers of Jesus throughout the world, including me. Dietrich was arrested and imprisoned for his oppression, for his opposition, I'm sorry, to Hitler and the Nazi regime. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged at Flossenburg concentration camp. Witness recorded his last words. And this is what Dietrich said. This is the end. But for me, it is the beginning 
of life. On this Palm Sunday and Holy Week, we take the time to reflect on Jesus' atoning sacrifice for us on the cross, and we are reminded in fresh ways, friends, of Jesus' radiant life, his radiant death, and his radiant resurrection. We are reminded of Christ's faithfulness in the smallest of things, his courage in the big things, and his hope in all things, including death, just like Stephen. And unless the Lord returns in our lifetime, in your lifetime, each one of us, each one of us will face death. The question is, will we die well? Most likely, we will not die in a blaze of martyrdom. But we will need courage to die well no matter the circumstances. And dying well, friends, is not so much about when you die. It's how you have lived. So, Pastor, I have seen death up close many times. And one of the distinctive marks of the true follower of Jesus is they die well. It's not that death is pleasant. It is not. Yet the Christian's death can truly be peaceful and hopeful. Because when sin entered the world, death became humankind's great enemy. Yet for followers of Jesus, death is not the final defeat. It is glorious victory. And what I've observed over the years is those who die well have lived well. They breathe grace. They have few regrets. They harbor no bitterness. They foster loving relationships. They have been faithful in their callings. Those who die well trust and follow Christ, the good shepherd who guides them home. Those who die well have hope beyond the grave. So will you die well? Will you die well? Whether you will or not is largely determined by how well you are living for Christ today, this week, this month, this year. Stephen was Luke's hero. Not only because he was the church's first martyr, he was that, but because Stephen lived well like Jesus did. Stephen was an apprentice of Jesus. He was faithful in the smallest of things. He had courage in the big things. Stephen had hope in all things, even death. One of the greatest privileges of my life was spending time with Dallas Willard. Here's a picture of when I was a little younger. It's something I cherish. Few people have shaped my life in the 30 years of Christ's community's existence more than that man longtime professor of philosophy at USC and phenomenology, a devoted Christian. Dallas was the most brilliant mind I have ever encountered and the most tender heart I've ever known. It's hard to describe Dallas. His prolific writings, I would predict, will be on the level of C.S. Lewis one day. Whether I'm right or wrong, I could be wrong. But his influence is profound. For many, Dallas Willard was a hero of faith, and he was for me. He was like Paul, who said in Philippians, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. When you were with Dallas, the presence of Jesus was always near. 
And Dallas would often pray with us, whether it's in a classroom, whether it's one-on-one, he would pray a repeated prayer. He would pray, Lord, grant them and me a radiant life and a radiant death. On May 4th, 2013, Dallas Willard died from pancreatic cancer. Much has been written and will be written about Dallas's radiant life. But what some people have missed was his radiant death. Gary Moon, who was a dear friend of Dallas, was with Dallas when he died. And he describes that moment of radiance. On May 4th, 2013, in the earliest glow before dawn, amid the smells of disinfectant and death, the great kingdom communicator turned his face away from the friend in his room and said his last two words, apparently to the author of his life. Thank you. That was Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard died well because as an apprentice of Jesus, he lived well. Dallas trusted Jesus fully for all of life and salvation and life. He followed Jesus closely. He kept eternity before his eyes like nobody I've ever known. And Dallas was faithful in the smallest of things. He exhibited courage in the big things. And Dallas had hope in all things. Like Stephen, like Dietrich, but ultimately like Jesus. Those who live well, die well. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let me ask you, will you die well? First, that means, are you ready to die? Jesus said, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Each one of us walks on the tightrope of time over the vastness of eternity. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead so that you and I could spend eternity with him. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It's a gift of grace Jesus wants us to experience. Have you embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior? And are you living well? Jesus invites us to enter his yoke and to learn from him and to be like him. Heavenly Father, I pray that in Christ's glorious atoning death, his glorious resurrection, that each one of us here, as we embrace Christ as Lord and Savior, through grace, through obedience to him as we follow him, Lord, may we one day hear, well done. May we have a radiant life and a radiant death. And may we receive by your grace only a standing ovation welcoming us, welcoming us home.